Hey everyone, welcome to part two of our conversation with legendary coach Rick Macy. Today we're going to discuss how he came up with all his famous coaching rhymes, where tennis will be in the future, and the single greatest tip for hitting a cleaner tennis ball. So sit back, relax, and prepare to become a smarter tennis player. I'd like to shift a little more focus to you and in, in, in the coaching. Um, you, you currently run the Rick Macy Tennis Academy down in South Florida, and you're very famous. You've already used a couple of them, Popping the Popcorn. Uh, one that I heard you know, when I was a very young coach and I hadn't even heard of you was Pat the Dog. That one's made the rounds. When did you learn in your you know, coaching career that using little phrases like that could be super helpful to kids learning technique? Kind of what I said about the Williams is something was done there at birth. I mean, I was writing poems and rhymes to my mom when I was seven years old. No, you have no idea. And like my mind just kind of bing, bing, it just kind of goes and, you know, hit on the rise, give them a surprise, knock out their eyes, you know, keep it low, win some dough, hit the angle. They're not going to want to tangle, take it out of the air. It's not fair. I could go on and on with a medley of little things. But when people, people, it's a proven fact, you learn better when kids get grades, you learn better when there's an association and they can identify. Instead of telling the kid to hit the ball or stroke the ball or, you know, do this, tell them to roll the ball. And then they might, they might swing differently just by you saying a word. But I started doing that early on. You know, I, I'm in my office at home here. You have no idea. I was always like that. Um, and I incorporate this. It's not goofy or gimmicky, but it worked with people and they remember it. And people come back 30, 40 years later, and they say these things. So I always react from how it percolates with the student and how they come back and maybe say things or games that I've done or sayings that I do. And everybody says the same thing. Um, now, regarding the ATP forehand that I did with USPTA that my late great friend Tim Heckler set up and gave me that opportunity to do all those videos for USPTA, when I talked about the outside and tapped the dog and what was really going on on the pro tour, no one really understood that. They saw, they saw Federer's forehand look different than Sharapova's or Venus's, but they didn't know why. And I broke it down with my partner, Dr. Brian Gordon, who has his PhD in biomechanics, wrote his the did his whole thesis on this stuff. A guy's the smartest guy in the world. The difference is, like, I can talk about it to you or a student where I can connect the dots. I'm not going to just buzz right over their head. And they go, that was amazing, but I don't know what he said. You know, it's one of those things. So that's kind of how I can do that, these little sayings and still get it across and expedite the learning curve. But I've done that my whole life and it's effective. It's like someone's at the net just today. I said, they weren't closing the net. And I said, when you're at the net, when it's slow, go. No, I said, no, I, I got to say, it. I go, when it's slow, what rhymes with grow? What rhymes with slow? And the kid goes, bro. I said, you're right, bro. But when it's slow, he goes, no. I go, wait a minute. When it's slow, you, he goes, go. So I fed it slow and the guy just closed the net like bonsai. So especially for club players, you know, sometimes it's not even about your technique. If you just have a, you know, a banshee attitude that you want to seek and swarm, those are sometimes the best doubles players who are just kind of, you know, psycho, you know, the guys that are real aggressive. 
And so when it's slow, go. Because when it's slow, people wait on the ball. You know what I'm saying? So any saying that you can come up with it, I mean, and I got, I got literally got thousands. Here comes your, your toughest question, because I want you to tell me what your favorite one is and why. Yeah, well, it's not even a, it's not even a, a rhyme. It would probably be uh, the mind's never neutral. It's either for you or against you. And, uh, you know, a lot of times, because I work so much on the mental part, you know, the biggest influence in my life, because people ask me all the time, they go, oh, you got a little John Wooden in you. And, uh, you know, no one really had an impact. I picked up a racket at 12. And my dad died when I was 10. I was a really good golfer. I couldn't, we couldn't join the country club. I grew up a half mile from a park. Now I live a half mile from the park. My whole career has come full circle. I taught myself how to play. By 18, I was number one in the Ohio Valley. I dabbled on the satellites for a while, played guys three, four, 500. I got really good really quick, um, mentally strong. But the mental part, uh, in the early 80s, uh, one of my best friends was Dr. James Lair. He's retired now. He was a pioneer, the first of the Mohicans. We did stuff in the early 80s. We used to play all the time. We did stuff called mind and performance for the corporate structure. And I was always intrigued growing up, I, I just with the mental part, I could always analyze things. And I knew how much, I don't know, I just, I wanted the ball at the end of the game, playing basketball. You know, I'd go to a movie with my friends. No one wanted to go with me because I was always analyzing the movie. Five minutes in, they'd go sit somewhere else. I don't want to be with Rick. So I always, this was like figuring things out. And I just, I like pressure. I had it backwards, you know, and that intrigued me at a young age and then get these exclamation points like on mental toughness of how I knew all this stuff or not knew all it knew a lot of stuff just by growing up with just my mom and my sister and the environment. We had really not a lot. And, you know, I, I wasn't entitled and I had to drive 60 miles to get a match and I'd hit against the wall after basketball practice. So I was mentally strong, but Dr. James Lair, he's the best of all time. He had the biggest influence. So that, I would say that's my favorite. No one's asked me that, but I, I use that a lot so the kids understand. You know, it's all about being positive. It's being able to flip things in your mind because uh, let's face it, with social media and all this nonsense in the world today, you get influence, there's too much negativity. Your mind has to be so strong. That's what I loved about Sharapova. She was in a bubble at 11. That doesn't mean you're going to be a great player. She had limitations, mobility, agility, flexibility. But the way I trained her for a year, higher uh, liabilities. But mentally, she had a box. I got her right in my office. She'll be number one in the world. I'm saying this at 12 years old. I got in my office. Venus is going to win five Wimbledons. She won five Wimbledons. This was in 92. Um, not that I'm a sensei or Buddha or a, a psychic, but I have a feel for this stuff. you know. And so the mental part. Once I can get someone to flip it in their mind, and you see what Joe, you see what these guys do at the top. They make an error after a 20 ball rally. They get the ball like it never happened. That's bulletproof. Where, you know, especially the girls you teach, they're drama queens, the world's coming to an end. They can do 10 things right. They miss one, the sky's falling. You know what I mean? They get a pimple, they need surgery, you know, sore throat. I'm not playing. It's not like that. I, I just, I give stories 
but at the end of the day, they choose. So the mind is never uh, neutral. Okay, it's either for you or against you. You got to choose. I, I I love that one. Um, and when a new player comes and they see you for the first time, is there a common stroke inefficiency or a common physical mistake that you see a lot of players make? And then and then what drill do you use to fix that or improve that? Yeah, well, it depends on if it's a five year old or ten year old or. You know, there's about 13 girls with edge management that I work with. All of them are top 10 in the world. Now they're on the pro tour, 150 to 600. Uh, the biggest thing is the serve, okay? To me, the serve's the easiest to teach because biomechanically, there's no movement involved. But it's the slipperiest slope because there's so many moving parts, and you can't see this with the human eye. The racket gets into the back too soon. It's on the other side. The leg drive is done at the wrong time. I mean, I was explaining all this, you know, six years ago to all the USTA coaches. No one really understands this. There's even, even when I was talking to Christian Rude, because I went to the Miami Open, I sat in the box with him when Casper played Alcaraz. I call him Alcatraz because he puts everybody in prison. The guy's like brutal. So, and it just, you could do 10 million of anything. That doesn't mean it's right. That doesn't mean it's optimal. There's people winning grand slams and it's not right. Okay. But it could be better. So I, and I, the way I put Humpty Dumpty together and the serve, it's iconic, okay? The way that I put their feet together and put them on probation, I reverse engineer the whole thing. People are just like, it's insane. You know, we're not to me, but I know how to do this. It's not just toss higher, you're, you're jump, it's not like that. So the serve, everybody, 99.9, it's wrong. Even the number one junior player in the world, even the number two, which I've, help both of them. Okay. So, uh, even Riley Opelka who had it 12 and 13, you want to hear some funny, you said something about sayings. We had a party, Halloween party. I don't know what type of party he came to the park. Okay. And cause I haven't seen him in a couple months and he comes up to me, he goes, step on a frog. Okay. Cause he would bring his back foot up when he was 12 and his foot, he would drag it. And I had him come up and step on a frog. I thought I told him step on a nail. But anyway, that's the first thing he said to me. And he's now 20-something, 23, 22, and this was 13. And he said, step on a nail or step on a frog. So that stuck with him. All I'm trying to say is it's, it's just the serve is so complex. And then even a lot of people on the Internet, and I know everybody's heart's in the right place, but their brain's not. And I understand about being loose and free. The problem is when you got kids and you're trying to be loose, the arm's twice as long. You bought a racket, Dick Sporting Good or whatever. Your arm's twice as long. You take it back. It gets in too soon. Where let's face it, and you know, the guys serve, it looks a little different than most of the girls. Maybe not Barty or some of the other, some of that do, do this right. The guy's racket is more on the hitting side. The girls go in their back on the other side, and the leg drive is late. So the symptom, the front shoulder comes down, the head comes down. The coach is saying the symptom, they're not the origin or the culprit. They're, they're identifying the wrong thing. And I know I'm getting out of whack here, but the serve is the number one thing. Now, for adults that come, I mean, not guys 70, 80, because their the jumping ability could be limited. It's not like, you know, Michael Jordan. But what I do with everybody on the serve, they're just blown away. And I do it in progression. And people, they hit, the difference is, everybody says I'm reaching higher, 
but I don't tell them to reach higher. They're coming off the ground more vertical. That's this way, not linear. I didn't tell them to do that. I put their feet in certain position. I actually tell them to jump too soon. I said, has anybody ever told you to jump too soon? Never. Well, first off, you shouldn't even tell someone to jump. If you push down, it should be a cause and an effect. But 99.9, .9, the legs are driven at the wrong time. So I do it backwards. Even the number one junior in the world, I told him when he bent down to jump back, not forward. Because he was leaning in so much, he couldn't even jump backwards. His dad said, do you have a problem? Why can't you jump backwards? So he tried to jump backwards for 15 minutes. After 15 minutes, he started going this way. I got his serve 12 miles faster by the end of the lesson. And it was that much higher over the net. His name's Dolly Blanche, okay? He's like one of the best juniors in the world. My point is the serve's all mess messed up. It's a tricky thing because you can't see it with the human eye because the racket's in too soon. But if somebody really looked when the legs drive, it's what we call counterintuitive. When the legs come up, the racket should come in. Most people, the racket's in, but it happens so quickly you can't see this. So the serve would be the leader in the clubhouse, which everybody does wrong. So we're going to finish up. These are some questions from my followers on Instagram that they had specifically for you. I got a little uh, bit more time because I'm not going back on the court. I just got to hang out with my cat and eat lunch. So I'm fine. Oh, beautiful. I need to go I, longer. I, awesome. I saw the cat in the background. It looks like, uh, looks like he's just chilling back there. But so the, the first follower, their question was, what is your top key to striking a clean tennis ball? You mean when you make contact with the ball? Yeah, like someone who has trouble trouble hitting it clean, they may be framing it. They they kind of want to know what's your best tip or tips for just kind of striking the ball First clean. First off, great great question. Uh, obviously, if I saw a video, not that I'm telling them to send me a video, okay? Some guys would do that. If I saw the video, I could tell them right away. But here's a game changer: when they swing the racket, whether they got a western or semi-western eastern, whether they have a loop whether they have ATP or WTA, whether when they take the racket back, whether the person's, you know, making a banana, a candy cane, a Ferris wheel, letter C, oval, arc, rainbow, whatever they're doing, say basic. When they hit the ball, when they go to hit the ball, after they hit the ball, see the back of the strings. If they can see the back of the strings, and this is something I coined like 30 years ago, because we all tell people, keep your head still. Okay, and that's the hardest thing to do. Federer does it. Not a lot of pros do this. Now, so that didn't work. So then I start thinking because the way the brain and the eyes are, the eyes are what we call target orientated. Golf, it's easy, easier because you're stationary. You're just and you stay down. Tennis, you're moving. So the last from my research, Dr. Gordon, the last four milliseconds, the head shifts, but you can't really see it. Now, when I tell people to do this, and whoever asks this question, uh, they're going to be blown away. If they can see the back of the strings after contact, it, go, they're going to say this. I already know what they're going to say. I'm into the ball longer. I'm hitting the center of the racket. I hit it more in front. Then, if that doesn't work, here's what I do. Because sometimes it doesn't work because some people are, like, freaking out already. So they try to do it right after contact. I have them look backwards at the clubhouse or the back fence. Now, when they do that, and this isn't because Rick Macy said to do it. This is all based on the students, tens of thousands saying, that's amazing. That's amazing. And then I'm looking at the result. And the, the balls are going in. 
They're like a Krispy Kreme. They're much crisper when they hit it. And the, 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 the people, they're blown away. Now, some guys are going, going, wait a minute, before, you know, especially if it's like a lawyer, he's going, well, wait a minute. How am I supposed to see where the ball's going? And then I got to go, hey, bro, you asked me, you wanted to hit the ball and stay solid. He's already coming up with a problem. Don't worry about the ball's going because it ain't going in the way you're doing it. And they all are, they, people in tennis, adults that you work with, they feel they don't have enough time in their mind. Whether they do or they don't, maybe they do or they don't, or people in general. And when they do that, everybody's blown away. That's the tip of the century. Even if they're not hitting a solid ball, if you would tell your students to do that. Now, I got one more point. People that look through the back of the string, mainly kids that I've had, this is bizarre. The best of the best wasn't Venus, Serena, Capriotti, right? It wasn't that. 75% of the kids that do this correctly, their parents were engineers. They understand physics and science, range of motion. Plus, the parents are kind of psycho, and they make them go home every night, and they do this, this, this exercise. So how crazy is that? You're reprogramming the reflexes, training the muscle memory different, but it's engineer. It's unfortunate that it's a high school player, someone that might want to play a little maybe division three or two, and they have amazing technique. But I put the technique maybe not on a thoroughbred, just a regular horse. I I, lo- I haven't heard that looking at the back of the strings, but I, I love that already. You got to use see, it. It's amazing. I, I can see why that works. No, it's um, crazy stuff. In your opinion, generally speaking, of course, you can't see every every individual we're talking about here. But what do you think the biggest difference or differences are between a top college player and a top professional player? Uh, it's a it's a cafeteria or a smorgasbord. You know, um, the first thing would probably be the athleticism. Tennis has changed so much. It's almost like advanced pinball on steroids. Unless you can serve like Opelka or Isner and you can just like be five all with your serve, even though if it was a boxing match, 19 out of 20, they do better. But you do one thing, you could be five all. I mean, think about it. Isner beat Federer on clay. Who's taking that bet? You know, because, uh, come on. So the the movement is a premium. So if you can move, even when you're nervous, you can hang in there and live another day. So I would say the movement the speed, the quickness, agility, and that's all in the eye of the beholder. You got to understand, you got many people tell me how fast and quick their kids are, and they come here, and uh, to me, they're a turtle. You got to understand, I've the fastest kids in, no, I'm being honest, you know, a fast turtle. But there, I've had the fastest people that ever played the sport, and there's different speeds, stopping, starting, agility, anticipation. You know, you know, you know kind of, Hingis wasn't a dart, but she knew where the ball was going before you did. She anticipated better in Venus than Serena. So my point is, I would look at those qualities, then the ability to compete, like I saw in Roddick, because he had some limitations, maybe, you know, volleying and feel and touch, but he was a dog. I mean, the guy would die to win a point. I mean, he just die. He would dive on hard courts. The guy was brutal. And I made his serve nuclear and forehand with supersonic. So at the end of the day, that would be the most important. Then, hopefully... Guys like me and you that work with kids when they're younger, they got decent grips, decent backswings. They weren't like done a disservice with a bad stroke 
or something that just was going to limit. See, I've had people lose millions of dollars by a bad grip at 12 or a crazy backswing. You know, people won the Orange Bowl, and I'm going, God, I wish I'd have had this person. If I'd had Kristen Rood at 12, I mean, he got to 39 in the world. His son's Casper's six now. I mean, Norway's not a hotbed for tennis, you know what I mean? <laughs> but I'm just thinking, you know, they, they just – so, and I know it's easy to Monday morning quarterback, so the technical part, you know, a, a Djokovic backhand, I'm theorizing, you know, Federer forehand, erotic serve, just biomechanically so there's nothing flawed about that and then you got a great athlete who's a dog okay now that that's like the difference who's gonna you know can maybe go and do some damage but that being said there's a big difference between 300 200 100 and then you go down the yellow brick road it's the mental let's take curios and monfis probably i'm generalizing Two of the best athletes on the tour. And their grand slams are Dunkin' Donuts. So, you know what I mean? I mean, they can maybe run, jump. I mean, not that they couldn't still. Everybody can grab one. But to be there and consistently stay there, kind of like what I've done in our profession, I'm, I'm, still, I'm still here, you know. So uh, it's the consistency of delivering the goods day in and day out that separates great, from good, because great is rare air. So I hope that kind of answered your question, the mental part. For sure. And and last question here, and this is a tough one, but the sport of tennis is always evolving. What do you think the next big thing will be tactically or technically that we'll see on the tours in 10 or 15 years? Well, it depends if they change the rules, okay? If they change the rules of the game, remember, the court's been the same forever. If they raise the net... That might change the game, okay? If they made the court bigger, that might be a problem because you'd have to, same with basketball, you know, that would change a little bit. If they made the ball bigger or smaller or slower, you know, the rackets, you just got to assume, like all sports, bigger, quicker, and faster. That, that no, one, no one's slowing the game down that much. So in the game of tennis, you know, it's, it's almost become, you know, you're, you're more athletic, you can run, you got these powerful rackets and strings. Where this will go, in my opinion, is this, and it's already evolving. I think the slice forehand will become more prominent shot, and you've seen that bubble up the last six, seven years, men's and women, because you don't have time, and it's all about time. You either slow the game down, you speed it up, or it's neutral. And a lot of coaches tell kids not to chip the forehand or slice it. Okay, if they're doing it because they're lazy, I agree. If they're doing it because of bailout, I agree. If they're doing it because they're nervous, I agree. But you got to have that in your arsenal. It's crazy on the women's tour. They're going bang, 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 bang. And someone chips it, whether purpose or accidental, like Barty, the girl hits in the net because you change the tempo. But I can see the slice forehand, which they did way back in the day. I think that's going to come back in, and it already has. Um, the guys do it on return of serve anyways. Because rule number one, get it back. Rule number two, see rule number one. I mean, that's the game of the game. Get it back. Don't launch a winner, you know. So I see the chip forehand becoming, if there was one shot, I think that's going to be the biggest thing. But it all depends if they change the rules of the game. What I'd like to see them do, and this would change everything, 
it might even become more of a mental game. Go to one serve. Interesting. You know, you'd have to have courage. Are you going to roll the dice? Are you going to get mad and just launch a missile from North Korea on the first one? I mean, what are you going to do? Are you just going to hit the kicker? You know, it changes everything if they did that, okay? Um, both ways. It cuts both ways. It probably gives more of an advantage to the ground stroker, okay? But I think that could be interesting if they ever did that. It'd be interesting just to play a fun exhibition with the best players and do some of these things and just kind of see how it is. And then I think coaching is going to become uh, a more prominent thing, which I don't think it should. I think the players should just figure it out. But that would be probably my best guess. That's really interesting. Is there, you spoke about, you know, raising the net or if they change the dimensions as someone who's done it for so long, would you like to see them keep the rules the same for as long as possible? Or, you know, assuming that there are no, you know, 30 years from now, people aren't so strong and so fast that it's a necessity. Would you like to see them keep it the same? Um, I haven't really, I haven't really thought about that one, but you know, if they, if they raise the net, that alone is going to change the game. If you change it to four feet, it would change the game. You know, people, I mean, it'll be probably more fun to watch. Or if they, you know, just change the dimensions of the court. Uh, but yeah, I would like to see them tweak it a little bit with, I think, any of those suggestions. But I think also you could see this. I know it takes time, but you might see people playing with two forehands, you know, lefty forehand and backhand as you get maybe better athletes into the game of tennis. And I think to answer your question, now that I'm thinking about this, I tell people this all the time. And it's not as much about me. If I'd have had LeBron James at 10 years old, I guarantee he'd be number one in the world. He'd be serving 150, brutal competitor, run like Batman, Spider-Man, Aquaman, and go for the jugular. And he would have amazing technique. That's the athlete that picks up a ball and starts shooting. We don't get in our sport. Or football, you just open up the door and go tackle your neighbor. You know, you don't, you don't need to. It's, tennis is expensive. So, and that's nothing against Corda. He might grab some grand slams. Francis is a good athlete. Riley's, you know, all these people are good, like Fritz, but great is rare air. That's a special fraternity. And these athletes like Joker, Medvedev, I mean, the guys like Spider-Man, you know, run 6'6". Six, six. You don't realize it. In the wingspan, but he can move. I mean, those guys are in the NBA. We, we don't have that. You, you know, so it's a different athlete <clears throat> That And I think that athlete, hopefully in the United States, and I told the USTA, you need to look for that needle in the haystack. You can test for this. You can draw blood. You should do this when they're seven years old. Put money behind it. Get them where their parents played in the NBA, NFL, Olympics. Look at Corda. Both parents on the tour. Both sisters, pro golfer. He's going to be, the, he'll be the next. It's going to be, you heard it live here. You're going to have Alcatraz 1 and quarter two, okay, in the world. You're going to see these guys become Nadal and Federer. I don't know, third. Maybe we'll talk again in a few months. I haven't thought about it. But those two, especially Alcaraz, I think he can be the greatest of all time. So this is what I'm trying to say. I think you have a, a even better athlete. All it takes one of those, LeBron. Because you got to have the mental. you got to have that environment like I saw with Venus and Serena. You know what I mean? Because the environment has a lot how rough and tough you are. That's why you see sometimes the Eastern Europeans, they're like, they can take a punch more. You know what I mean? So, but at the end of the day, uh, amazing question. Thank you. 
So, you know, time is our most valuable commodity and, and you've been gracious to spend an hour with us. Um, before we leave, where can people find you if they want to see more of your instruction online or, or kind of want to look into maybe coming down to South Florida? Yeah, well, first, I appreciate that. Um, I'm at, in Boca Raton, Florida, Rick Macy Tennis Center. It's www.rickmacy.com. Uh, it's South County Regional Park, 19 courts. Looks like Disneyland and Candyland. We have 52 tournaments a year, $10,000 prize turning every weekend. There's one going on right now. Amazing field. You wouldn't believe the players we get besides the academy and many pros there. It's just amazing. Like I said, I grew up in a park. I live right next to a park. So uh, it's been amazing. I open up the park every day at five o'clock. Okay. At, at 67 years old, I'm a park ranger. I'm going to put that on my resume. So no, they can find me there. I'm there all the time. I teach anybody. Instagram account, got a big following, Facebook, but on YouTube, Rick Macy Tennis, the instruction is, is free. I mean, I do, I just did like 12 today when we came on. And at this stage of the game, I just want to help out coaches. I feel sharing and however they want to wrap it or say it or put their own spin on it, that's up to you. I'm, I'm just one of the guys. I'm not a territorial guy. I, I, I just like helping others and, you know, make the world a better place for people to get the most out of themselves, not just in tennis, but, but in life. Because more people come back to me and say how I help them with their work ethic or clean their room or get off drugs or make get better grades than you help my forehand or whatever. I don't remember their name. I just remember what state they lived and what stroke they had. So that's kind of how people can get a hold of me. And also on the website, this is crazy. I'm glad you're sitting down. I did this thing before the pandemic called NetRicks. Okay, it's a medley of 10-minute videos. Okay, NetRicks. Okay, I kind of put a little spin on it. So I didn't know what was going to happen. And I don't know, last count, there was like 47,000 people that subscribed to this. It's $100 a year. $98 a year. And it's like 50 videos. And um, even though a lot of it now is on YouTube, you can get it for free. So there's all kinds of stuff. And I sell videos on there. I have three books. You know, Macy Magic, which everybody really enjoyed. Great stories in there about everybody I taught. Another one, what you may see is different than Rick may see. And another one is Macy Mental Magic, a lot of mental stuff. Uh, but at the end of the day, um, people can send me videos. People can look me up. Or if they even send me an email or give me a call, I answer the phone and I get back to everybody within 24 hours. Well, you, you've certainly helped me as a coach today. And hopefully the listeners out there have gotten something out of that. Uh, like you said, you're, you're a little bit of a tennis Nostradamus and predicting the Wimbledons and whatever. So maybe in the future, we'll see if uh, Alcaraz is one, Corda is two, and you can let us know who number three will be once you uh, get some time to think about it. <laughs> that, that sounds like a plan. All right. I really want to thank Rick for taking the time to talk with us these past two episodes. Obviously, I love the tip about staring at the back of the strings after you hit the ball. It's another way to communicate keeping your head still, but as he said, that's almost impossible to execute. So try this tip out and see if you're hitting more crispy creams next time you step on the court. I want to thank you all for listening. I know there are a lot of podcasts out there, and I'm grateful you chose to join me today. I'm motivated to evolve and improve, so please subscribe if you enjoyed the episode and leave a comment or review so we keep getting better every week. For more, check out my Instagram at Stokey Tennis for clips from these podcasts, as well as general drills and tips to help your tennis game. Thanks for listening. I hope you just improved at tennis without even hitting a ball.